Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? So last Saturday, I went to the Free Palestine protest down in Neukölln. Afterwards, when I was talking to my mother, she was reading me the news articles that sort of detailed what had happened. And it was interesting to have been there and to see the way it was reported, because the way that the German media reported the protest did not align with what I witnessed. The protest was completely peaceful until the police very suddenly and violently attacked the crowd, and it just escalated from there. But I think senseless police violence is something that no one is surprised by. Just like probably everyone, or at least I'm assuming everyone who listens to this podcast, the situation in Palestine has been on my mind this week, how Germany fits into this entire situation, the way things are reported in Germany, the history, it's just been occupying most of my thoughts this week. Yeah, I think the last figures that I read was 200 civilians, Palestinians dead, uh, including 60 children, which is devastating, and just people thrown out of their homes, everything destroyed, all the infrastructure, hospitals, media centers, which is clearly against international law. At the time that we are recording this, there has been a ceasefire for a couple of hours that has just been broken. So before we go into the German media, and Germany obviously has a very special relation towards Israel, a lot of people have been saying, oh, it's really a complicated situation. We don't know anything about it. When did this thing start? So we're going to explain to you a little bit about the history of the whole situation, just to put everything in context. All right, here we go. So in the 19th century, Palestine was under the rule of the Ottoman Empire. From Ottoman Empire records, we know that in 1878, 87% of the population identified as Muslim, 10% as Christian, and 3% as Jewish. At that time, everyone spoke Arabic, and in Jerusalem, the religious population was roughly equal. Around this time, in Europe, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there was a man called Theodor Herzl. He was a Jewish journalist, and he became convinced that the Jewish population needed to settle in their own country. This form of Jewish nationalism became known as Zionism. It is important to note that most Zionists were secular Jewish people, so they wanted a state for Jews, not a Jewish state. Now, in 1917, the British, hoping to gain Jewish support, signed the Balfour Declaration, which promised the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Even though at this time Palestine was still under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, as World War I wasn't over yet. Also in 1916, the British secretly promised the French that they would divide up the Arab territories and that the Brits would keep Palestine. Furthermore, because the Brits were just all over the place, in 1915, they promised the ruler of Mecca, Sharif Hussein, that he would rule over all the Arab states, including Palestine, if he led an Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, which he then promptly did. Shortly after the war ended, the Brits established a colony in Palestine, thinking that they would rule it themselves for some time, and then when Palestine was ready to self-govern, they would give it back. 
During this time, the British set up separate institutions for Jewish, Christian, and Muslims in the country, making it really difficult for them to cooperate amongst one another, but making it easier for the British to divide and rule Palestine. The British did try to honor the Balfour Declaration, and between 1920 and 1939, the Jewish population increased by 320,000. By 1938, the Jews were just under 30% of the population of Palestine. Much of the Jewish population focused on purchasing land from absentee non-Palestinian Arab landowners and evicting the Palestinian farmers. This obviously led to tensions and to problems. In 1936, there was a Palestinian revolt against the British, and this was squashed with the help of Jewish militias. These militias were set up in part due to these tensions that occurred during the time when the land was being bought from non-Palestinian Arab landowners. The British then issued a white paper calling for a limitation of Jewish immigration to Palestine and calling for the establishment of a joint Jewish-Arab state in Palestine within the next 10 years. Things were relatively calm during World War II, but at the end of the war, the Brits left and handed over the land to the newly created UN. In 1947, the UN voted to partition Palestine into two states. In 1948, the Arab-Israeli war broke out between Israel and Palestine and many of its Arab neighbor states. An armistice was signed, and Israel occupied a third more land than the UN had proposed in 1947. During this time, Jordan then controlled and later annexed the West Bank and the old city of Jerusalem, and Egypt took control of the Gaza. Around this time, 700 Palestinians fled their home. This time was known as the Nebka which in Arabic means the catastrophe. Today, the descendants of the 700,000 Palestinians who fled numbers at 7 million. In 1967, the Six-Day War broke out, and Israel won and gained control of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and Golan Heights. The UN then passed another resolution called Resolution 242, which outlined a framework for achieving peace. Israel would give back the land, and everyone would recognize the two-state solution. In 1964, the PLO was founded, led by Yasser Arafat. Israel started to establish Jewish settlements in West Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. Today, there are roughly 350,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank and 200,000 in East Jerusalem, and these are all illegal under international law. By the late 1980s, Palestine launched the first Intifada, out of this, the Hamas was founded. This then led to more peace talks known as the Oslo Accords, and these were based on Resolution 242. We had the Bill Clinton peace talks. During this time, the Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, was willing to give up land, which surprised even Arafat. Then in September 2000, Prime Minister candidate Ariel Sharon led a group of a thousand armed guards to the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem, which is known as Alaska Mosque, to the Muslims. This led to protests and the Second Intifada. During this, 3,000 Palestinians died and 1,000 Israelis died. In 2002, claiming self-defense, Israel began to build a wall around the West Bank, but instead of following the boundaries that had been established in 1967, they included the settlements. In 2005, Arafat died. Hamas won the majority of the parliamentary seats. Gaza is now ruled by Hamas. And the West Bank is ruled by the Israelis, with 42% of it under varying degrees of autonomous rule by the Palestinians. And yeah, 
here we are today. And that is a super brief, very vague historical context. Please research it yourself. You know, people think about this situation. They're like, oh my God, it's so complicated. It's gone on for ages, but actually it hasn't gone on for ages at all. It's just gone on since the British started to interfere. And on one of the videos we were watching, somebody went to the comments and they were saying, oh, I came down to the comments to read them to see Israelis and Palestinians and everyone bashing each other. But in fact, the only comments were about the British just messing everything up, which is typical of the British because they do divide and rule and they really leave a total mess behind. It's the same in India as well. You can see with uh, India and Pakistan and it's ongoing till today. The other question that I just wanted to clarify a little bit was this thing about the settlements. You hear a lot about the settlements all the time. So the settlements are specifically a strategy to take land that should be legally Palestinian land by sending Jewish settlers and Jewish families there to form their own towns. And these towns then, they come with military protection because they're in an area where they're not supposed to be. So then the Palestinian land is occupied by whole towns that split up their area of land, plus the military occupation that comes. So it's a very sideways way of conquering land. Yeah, I think part of the issue is whenever people say, oh, it's so complicated, so complicated, you're like, well, it's not really complicated, is it? Because what's currently happening right now is one side has an incredibly sophisticated military and are supported by the US and by Britain, and the other side has nothing. So it's not a fair fight, and I feel like on a public stage, it's a little bit embarrassing for us to pretend like it is. And yes, Hamas will fire rockets at Israel, but Israel has such an advanced military that I think something like 90% of the rockets, they won't reach their target. And the other way around, Israel's rockets, which have blown up Al Jazeera, COVID testing centers, civilian homes, homes in refugee camps, they hit their targets. What Israel is doing is a war crime. And I feel like it's time that we publicly, as a country, call them out on that. What you're saying is really interesting because Germany, publicly, in the media, and all politicians across all party lines have completely stood by Israel. And this they kind of must do because the Germans, obviously, because of the Holocaust, because of the history and because of the way that the Israeli state was created, must support the existence of a state for Jewish people. And it must also support the defense of that state. However, officially, Germany does actually support a two-state solution. It also gives, along with the EU, a lot of money to Palestine in aid. But the public face of Germany, for example, just yesterday, Maas, who is the defense minister, went to Israel and condemned Hamas and said that Israel has the right to defend itself. And that was the view. Same with Angela Merkel's spokesman and the official government line was that the attacks on Israel were terrible and Israel has the right to defend itself and this is the official line it never it never acknowledges the fact that israel is committing war crimes and in fact in 2008 during a speech in knesset merkel talked about germany's 
particular historic responsibility towards Israel, and she said specifically, it is part of the reason of state of my country. And this has just been reiterated across party lines, and to just show you how biased this is, this absolute pro-Israel view. Annalena Baerbock's tweet about 10 days ago, when she was asked what her line was on the war, said in her tweet that she strongly condemns the ongoing rocket attacks by Hamas. These must be ended immediately. The spiral of violence shows how urgent it is to resume peace negotiations. Now that to me is a pretty German response and pro-Israel, anti-Hamas, pro-Israel's right to defend itself and exist as always. However, her tweet got so many angry responses. It got so much criticism because they were like, oh, what do you expect? Do you expect Israel to not defend itself? To Because she used this term, spiral of violence, which kind of just about implied that, yeah, both sides are really to blame for this, which is true because Hamas and Netanyahu are continuing the violence to the detriment of both their people. But the the editor of The Welt called her phrase, spiral of violence, naive and ignorant. And that's not even, to me, that's a, a little bit of a balanced view, maybe. But compared to everyone else, this little term, spiral of violence, just caused a lot of reaction, which just shows how special the relationship between Germany and Israel is. And when you were saying about the protests and how they were covered, I think there is a real nervousness and a real paranoia and hypervigilance about anti-Semitism in this country, which, of course, there should be. However, it often gets conflated with just the fact that you're protesting a war crime, that you're protesting bombing, and that you're protesting against a state and a state's actions. So I think the police, what you've witnessed there is very strongly the state's stance on this because we went to Black Lives Matter and Women's March, the Hanau demonstration. And they were not broken up in that way. The police did say, oh, people were maybe in Berlin and Frankfurt not sticking to the distancing rules. And of course, as with any protest, and this should be condemned, there was the burning of the Israeli flag that should not have happened. There is a tiny minority everywhere at protests and demonstrations, which will be extreme. And then there were some anti-Semitic crimes committed in the last days as a result of this conflict. And of course, that should be condemned. However, in the German media, the only angle and the only framing has been about the anti-Semitic attacks, about anti-Semitism on the rise. And the Linke Party even posted, or a chapter of the Linke Party in Osnabrück, posted a big thing that said, oh, we have imported anti-Semitism, which at the same time is sort of totally racist, anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim by saying that everyone who protests against Israel or every immigrant or every Muslim person is an anti-Semite. So there seems to be this weird, illogical tunnel vision thing of really trying to not have the crimes of the Second World War repeated. But in doing so, you're kind of perpetuating a lot of stereotypes, a lot of racism, a one-sided bias, discrimination, polarization of society, and fragmentation. Because of course, the other thing that's happened in Germany over the last years since the 
refugee crisis is that we've got now 800,000 Syrians living here who are also protesting because they have also been bombed out of their houses and feel an empathy for these people. Plus, there are refugees from Afghanistan and Iran here. Plus, there is a whole portion of German citizens who are of Turkish descent, which you're going to take this view in mainstream society. You are basically alienating and marginalizing a whole portion of your entire society, which is not smart. It feels a little pot calling the kettle black to insist that we have imported anti-Semitism because Germany has done an absolutely terrible job of getting rid of its Nazi past. We discussed this on our Hanau episode, but the majority of old-school German companies that exist nowadays were guilty of collaborating or working with the Nazis. You can't get into an Audi. You can't get into a Mercedes. You can't read a magazine by the Boda Falak without having the blood of those people on your hands. So it seems super hypocritical for a country that in its essence has not got rid of its Nazi roots to all of a sudden turn around and proclaim solidarity in such a way with Israel. That's incredibly hypocritical. Because if Germany really truly cared about the Jewish population of this world, we would sit down and really deal with our past and really deal with the structures of power and the institutions of power that still exist in our society today that come from that time. And this whole weird putting on a show PR business that they're pulling in this solidarity with Israel is causing the death of innocent people. And that's not okay. Not only is it not okay, it kind of makes Germany culpable as well. Because if there were more international pressure, if people were not diminishing the terrible violence and saying that it's justified, if they did not lend these nations, together with the US, the ability to act with impunity, we would have reached a ceasefire earlier and lives would have been saved. And I would also argue that lives would be saved in Germany if there was not this superficial dialogue that was not open and honest and fair and deep enough to actually tackle the problems of German society where racism still exists and anti-Semitism still exists. This whole Germany's PR solidarity with Israel is really telling when you consider that we had the attacks on the synagogue not too long ago. The IFD, whose leader is literally a descendant from Nazis, and they just made it illegal for women to wear a headscarf when teaching. It is illegal if you work in public office. So we have this massive issue in Germany and yet Islamophobia is okay. It feels hypocritical to publicly announce your solidarity with one state, all the while perpetuating hate against another minority group. To emphasize how highly sensitive this issue is in Germany, last year, the youth party of the SPD announced that they were choosing the youth party of Palestine as their sister party. And this made so many people mad. And there was an article in the Neue Zeitung by an author who claimed that by doing this, the 
youth party of the SPD are denying the right of Israel to exist. Which is, in saying that, choosing the youth party of Palestine as their sister party, they're denying Israel the right to exist. What they're basically saying is, Palestine isn't real, and only Israel is real. Thus, by choosing Palestine over Israel, yeah, what a statement to make. Surely, if Germany really supported a two-state solution, then that should be no problem, right? Palestine is a country, so why is it considered a controversial topic for them to choose the Youth Party of Palestine as their sister party, unless there's some other underlining issue here, Germany, isn't there? I just, I keep thinking about Hamas, because please do not misunderstand me, but it seems ridiculous to me that all of the conversations in public focus on violence enacted by the Hamas without considering what the Hamas was born out of. I mean, I think you're right, and that's what the whole point of everything is, is that hate breeds hate. And in a way, Baerbock is right, there's this kind of spiral of violence, and how do you get out of that? You stop and you have a dialogue, and you just open and honest, and you listen to each other's sides, and then we can get somewhere. But as the situation is, it feels like there are extreme people on either side, and the normal people are kind of suffering as a result. I legitimately think that at first, in public, we need to address how we're talking about this issue, and see how incredibly biased our views are, and also the fact that this isn't a case of one side beating the other. This is a case of one side being backed into a corner and being absolutely bludgeoned while the other is weirdly supported in public in this country because most casualties have been on Palestinian side and Israel is committing war crimes. And I just think there's all this talks about peace and solutions, but we haven't even acknowledged what the actual problem is. But actually, I think, apart from Germany, which is an extreme case and a very special case, you can see in the international press, also in the US, and when you read the comments, when you see general public opinion, there is something turning slightly in favour of the people of Palestine. Do you feel that? Well, I think that social media is actually playing a really big role in this because up until very, very recently, we were just reliant on the media for our news and to spread information. We didn't have the ability to share our thoughts and to share solidarity in the way we can right now. So I think that the people are taking back public opinion and sharing their opinion. And that's why I feel like solidarity feels like it's growing. And it potentially is. Solidarity with Palestine is growing. And on that note, here are our three things you can do to be a better person. So thing one, since 2000, 100,000 people have been killed. Of these 100,000, 89% are Palestinians. Of the 2,200 children that have been killed, 94% of them are Palestinian. The SOS Kinderdorfer in the Gaza Strip say that 80% of Palestinian children have psychological problems and that every second child doesn't want to live. We've compiled a list of resources, of places to donate, to help the children and the people in Palestine. We will link it in our newsletter and also on our Instagram. Thing two, 
It helps to educate yourself on this topic in order to form your own informed view and not be swayed by different biases that different people and outlets might have. Therefore, we are linking to some YouTube videos plus some resources in our newsletter. As always, you can sign up. The link is in our link tea on Instagram. And right now, Rina is reading the book On Palestine by Noam Chomsky and Ian Papet, which we will also put a link to in our newsletter if you want to go even further. And thing three, make sure that when you're criticizing Israel, you're not being anti-Semitic. Criticism of Israel is not inherently anti-Semitic. However, it can depart from the realm of fair comment and cross into the boundaries of anti-Semitism. In summary, critique of Israel can spill over into anti-Semitism if you subject Israel to a double standard and or make every Jewish person in the world responsible and answer for the actions of Israel. Thank you for listening. Until next week. Goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube. For news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references, and other geeky inspiration, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.